Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information that you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, Tonic Vibes and Ember Wave. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining us. I'm here today with Trishna Baradia, who's joining us from the UK. And she lives with MS and is an award-winning campaigner and advocate for MS awareness. So Trishna, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. It's um, such a pleasure, especially to, to speak to somebody over the pond, so to speak. <laughs> Absolutely. It's always a treat for me when I interview people overseas because it's really interesting to hear how our different health systems have handled people's conditions. So I'm interested. Definitely. <laughs> so let's just start from the very beginning. Can you tell us, Trishna, how and when you first discovered that you had something going on? Yeah. So I, um, I actually had my first symptoms about three, it was probably about three years before I was actually diagnosed. But as is the case with many people who go on to be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, my initial symptoms were actually misdiagnosed as something completely different. Mm. So I lost the strength in both my hands and it was diagnosed at that time as repetitive strain injury, which I had no, you know, no reason to question that diagnosis because I was otherwise very healthy, very active. Um, I've always been very sporty. I was working full time and it was an isolated symptom. And so I was told it was repetitive strain injury. I was sent for physiotherapy. In time, it got better. Things improved. Um, And it wasn't until sort of around three years later. So now we're talking about summer 2007. I completely lost the feeling down one side of my body. Mm. That's really when. So I thought, okay, First of all, I thought it was maybe a trapped nerve. I played a lot of field hockey. I was always getting injured and, and things. So I thought, well, maybe I've just done something playing hockey. But after around, uh, I'd say probably about three or four days when it was increasingly getting worse and spreading, I thought, okay, there's something not quite right here. I should go and see the um, the doctor. And 
probably quite luckily, actually, I um, saw a doctor who was newly qualified. And because of that, I think she was very conscientious about making sure she covered all bases. Mm. At that point, she said, look, it could be something neurological, especially because I, I mentioned to her that my cousin had actually been diagnosed with MS the year before. Ah. And so she said, well, look, let's send you to a neurologist. And I went with the neurologist. And then it was what I call a very um, typical path to diagnosis. So I had MRI scans, um, which that's a, a key diagnostic tool for MS. And also a lumbar puncture or spinal tap mm. um, and various blood tests. And this was over the course of around nine months. And in the meantime, I also started experiencing other symptoms. So pins and needles, burning sensations, extreme fatigue. Um, And eventually, and this is May 2008 now, and I was aged 28 at the time, I was given the definitive diagnosis of MS. So, yeah, I would say that once I'd lost that feeling down one side of my body, it was a it was a very typical sort of path. I say typical path. I mean, typical path in the UK um, where you're sent for MRI scans and blood tests and you have the spinal tap done. And yeah, luckily within nine months was given a diagnosis. Wow. But it seems a long time to wait nine months. Was it stressful going through that waiting period? Um, it was stressful. I kind of, so I kind of felt like it was, you know, when you're waiting for exam results, when you're at school or college, that's what I kind of felt like. And you, you know, all these things are going through your head about things that it could potentially be. Mm -hmm. And I think when it came to the actual getting the diagnosis, Yes, it was a shock because I'd never, you know, really had any, I've never had any really, you know, long-term conditions or any really ill health. Mm. Um, so it, it was a shock, but at the same time, it was also a bit of a relief because I mm. felt like, okay, now I know what it is. There are options. There are things that I can do. So, okay, let's get on with it and let's make a plan because, right. You know, I didn't want, I did, I think it would have been worse had I not known what's wrong. Right. Um, Knowing what was wrong then gives you some semblance of being able to then take back control because the options available and say, okay, I can do this, this, and this. And, you know, I need to make lifestyle changes in this way. And, you know, these are the treatment options which are available to me, um, which obviously if you don't know what's wrong, and I know many people where it literally takes years to get a diagnosis. And when they're waiting for that diagnosis, they can't do anything. And then having to, you know, cope with symptoms, which they're not even able to necessarily manage properly because they don't have a definitive diagnosis. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it was it was hard it was as hard as you know any kind of you know waiting for test results when it's to do with your health um as as that can be but like I said once that diagnosis came it was 
a, a relief to know, okay, now I can start making plans. Absolutely. So what were those plans? What, how have you uh, tackled the treatment options available to you and, and what have you found that's worked best for you so far? Um, so at the time of my diagnosis so in the UK, there was only um, actually, um, so there was only actually four disease modifying therapies available for relapsing MS. And I was only eligible for three of them. Mm-hmm. And so it, in a way, it was I say it was an easier decision because now in the UK, there's about 13 or 14 licensed disease modifying therapies for relapsing MS. So if you diagnose now, you've actually got a huge range of different options. Um, Whereas, yeah, like I said, there was only a few options available to me. And so the disease modifying um, treatments, they they don't cure MS. There is no cure for MS currently. What they do is they can slow down the progression and the um, reduce the number of relapses. Hmm. Um, so when so I, I'm I've always been somebody who I'm very curious. I like to ask questions. I've always been very informed about my health, and I was literally I was handed this essentially a life changing diagnosis. But unfortunately, I wasn't offered any support or guidance or any signposting as to where to go for reliable information, where to look for services and support. Mm. And I realise now that even though I, so myself and my family, we did a lot of research into the different op- treatment options available, I didn't fully understand what I was reading um, I thought I did at the time, but because I know much more now, actually realized actually I didn't. And to be honest, I was making decisions that were more convenient than anything. So, you know, I, I was still playing a lot of, I was still playing league field hockey. Wow. Um, and so I had, I would have league matches at the weekend and I knew I didn't want to be injecting. So all the, the disease modifying treatments that were available to me at the time, they were self injections. Mm. Um, and I didn't really want to be injecting on a weekend. So um, that sort of narrowed the choice down. Um, and yeah, ended up choosing a treatment, which I was then on, I was on it for three years, and then developed an immunity to it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so then I had to switch. Um, and by this time, I'd also changed my neurologist. Mm. So in the UK, you have general neurologists and you have MS specialists. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Which I, at the time of diagnosis, I didn't know this. Um, I was diagnosed by a general neurologist. It was only sort of around three years down the line that I then learned actually there are MS specialists and I could be referred to one because I had a diagnosis of MS. Even though I, so now I do an 80, that's eight zero mile round trip to see my MS specialist. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But the thing is, is I do it because I know I'm getting the best care Mm. available and they are a specialist in MS. They live and breathe MS 24-7 sort of thing. So 
you know, all the latest research, they know what treatments are coming through the pipeline, they have a really good understanding of what life with MS can can involve. Mm. Um, so I had I had moved to this new neurologist and he was actually the one who said, look, you've been on this treatment for three years, we should test you. Mm. Um, and I came back and yes, I was immune to it. So I switched to another treatment. Um, and at this point, I had no options. There was only one other treatment that I could switch to. Um, but then after 18 months, I then developed another long-term condition um, as a result of, um, more than likely as a result of that treatment, I developed chronic hives and angioedema, which is deep tissue swelling. Oh, wow. So yeah, came off, I had to basically come off that um, as well. So it's been, it's been tough because the thing is, is that these, you know, the treatments that you take are meant to make you feel better, but at the same time, you can end up, you know, in a situation where, you know, like I said, I, the, the, the chronic urticaria and angioedema mm. triggered and I, I have it and it's a condition which I now have to have to manage. Wow. So, yeah, which is when I think things like lifestyle and your attitude and your approach really make a difference because there were times, particularly with the um, when the urticaria first developed, and I was obviously I was trying to manage my MS and I was having all over body flares with these hives mm. every other day sort of thing. And there are times when you feel really, really down and, you know, you think to yourself, gosh, you know what, you know, I've already got this to contend with and I've got something else to cope with as well. And then you're trying to juggle your medications, find what works. Um, and funnily enough, so in order to help manage the, the hives, I actually went on to a low histamine diet. Right. And a lot of the things in the low histamine diet that I had to cut out were things which could potentially help with my MS. Oh, man. And so then you were like, oh, gosh, you know, what, what do I do? Um, and then you have to prioritize and think, well, what is your, what's the most pressing concern? And at that time, it was getting the urticaria under control mm. because really affecting my life. I mean, it was affecting me being able to go out, I couldn't get too hot because heat was a real trigger. So my exercise levels went down. I then started to put on weight, which mm-hmm. then was affecting my mental health. And obviously and putting on too much weight isn't good for your MS either. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was all these things which you're then having to juggle and trying to balance, which I think many people who don't necessarily live with any long-term conditions don't don't necessarily understand or realize how it can literally take over your life just trying to manage things on a day-to-day basis absolutely so yeah it's it's been it's been it has been um it hasn't been easy having said that I do I, I take the attitude that life is about the challenges that you face and it's about how how you overcome them and how you deal with them. And I know that I wouldn't be the person that I am today if it wasn't for the fact that I've been through these challenges. 
Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with the person that I am today. So I have to be grateful and thankful that some of these challenges have, um, have come up in my life. Yeah, absolutely. And and now that there are so many more treatment options available to you, as you mentioned earlier, have you been able to sort of diversify how you're going after the MS now and find other treatments um, that work for you? Um, in theory, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, my MS currently is stable. So um, things like, um, you know, I make sure that I exercise um, a lot. I make sure that I'm doing stuff for my brain health. There's a very good initiative out there, which is called, um, it's actually called MS, MS Brain Health Initiative. Mm. And it gives you practical advice as to how to stay brain healthy. Mm. So not just through things like diet and exercise, but also how to keep your mind active. Um, so it's important, for example, to also have social interactions because having something like MS can you can be very easily become socially isolated, right? And then that in itself can have a knock-on effect in terms of your physical health and also your mental health. Absolutely. So it's all about you know making sure that you're doing all the right things. But also, and I think this is really important, I think it's also important to um, recognize and understand the value of asking for help. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> That's a really huge thing in this community is getting to that point where, where you're willing to ask for help and learning yeah. how, that it, how that works. Yes, no, it is. And, you know, especially if you're someone who's been, you know, who's independent. So, you know, I went away from home for university. I've I've lived abroad. So I lived in Spain for a year as part of my degree um, and always liked doing things myself. Um, So it it was hard having to, you know, that realisation that in order to do all the things that I want to do, I am going to have to ask for help. And I rely on my parents now a lot more than I've ever done in the past, even though obviously I'm, it, you know, in theory, as you grow older, you're meant to rely on your parents less. Mm. But it that's the way that it, it's had to happen because of, you know, because of my condition. And Learning to embrace that, I think, has been really key to staying um, staying positive and, you know, looking at things from, so now, instead of thinking, oh, uh, you know what, I'm not going to be able to do this unless one of my parents takes me, for example. So, you know, if I've got a conference that I'm speaking at in London, or, you know, my mum has come with me all over Europe when I've been speaking at conferences and stuff because I need her with me as my care, um, as my yeah. care. Um, so instead of now thinking, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not that independent and I wish that, you know, I could be more independent and stuff like that. I now think, well, actually, it's meant that I've been given the gift of time with my mum. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've got to know each other in a very different way than I think we would have done if I, if I didn't have MS and I didn't need that support. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's all, it's, there's a, a lot of value in looking at things positively. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have bad days and, you know, I do think, you know, things are negative and, you know, because I'm, I'm only human. But 
generally I do try and you know flip it around um because at the end of the day I I take the attitude I I have this and it's not going to go away so if I'm going to be negative then that very quickly I will end up being negative for essentially you know my life and the person I want to be so yeah absolutely and I think we often learn that lesson the hard way you know like it's, we're able to to find positivity because we've we've done the negative route and it hasn't worked yeah. for us, you know. Yes. It yeah. only makes us sicker, doesn't it? You yeah. know. Yes. Yeah. And it's it's really beautiful that you've you've really enhanced your relationship with your parents and particularly with your mom, almost as your advocate. Um, yes. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I think well, and also so just generally, our family life has been very challenging in the last. So, well, since my diagnosis, because, so as I said, my cousin was diagnosed the year before me, um, and that was my uh, my mum's brother's son. Hmm. And I have a younger sister who, um, she eventually went on to be diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Oh, wow. But her symptoms started in the year that I was diagnosed with my MS. Um, also, uh, as a result of, um, so she was involved in a high-speed car accident, which wasn't her fault. It was literally in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. As a result of that, she also um, she also suffered from PTSD. Of course. For, for several years. So there's been, obviously, she's had her own issues, which as a family we've had to deal with. And then I also have an identical twin sister. Oh, wow. And she was diagnosed with MS three years after me, so in 2011. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's, so it, it's been very challenging as a family. You have to find those new dynamics and how the relationship is going to work going forward. Because, you know, for example, so, you know, at home, it's now myself, my younger sister and my parents. My, uh, my twin sister is married and she lives away from home. Um, but even just on a day-to-day basis at home, so my younger sister, if she's having a flare of ulcerative colitis, then there are certain symptoms, you know, she might be in pain, she might be, you know, going to the bathroom multiple times in the day and, you know, having suffering from fatigue and stuff. And then there's me and my main symptoms on a day-to-day basis are fatigue and also bladder issues. Hmm. Just generally in the house your family dynamics you know everyone has to okay so you know this is a good day Patricia is it something that she can help her sister can help with or vice versa and how is it that my mom and dad can you know can input into that mm-hmm. um, so we all work full-time um, mm-hmm. so a full-time job I'm a translator and analyst for a business intelligence company um my sister and both my parents are still working as well Mm. and on top of that I'm also doing all the advocacy and awareness raising so you know I don't know how you do it it's really amazing (laughs) (laughs) around me that's I honestly it's because I have the support around me Mm. but it is a lot of give and take and you have to be mutually supportive to each other um, you know, if I didn't have their support, it would make things much harder. Yeah. Um, so I think having that environment, and it's one of the reasons why I, I think I really 
understood the value of raising awareness because not everybody does have that support. And if they don't, they need to know where they can go in order to get, you know, this access to services, to information and the support that they may not necessarily be getting um, at home. Yeah. So I am very, you know, very thankful for that. Mm. because You know, I actually call, particularly my parents, I call them my enablers because mm-hmm. they to do all the things that I'm, I'm doing. Um, and yeah, I know that, I know that they're very proud of me. <laughs> yeah, I, they must be. I mean, and we'll get into your advocacy work in a little bit, but you know, it's just, it's wonderful because it sounds like in a way you and your sisters being diagnosed has brought all of you closer together because you're working more as a unit. Yeah, it, yeah, it definitely has done, and I think also that there's been a more of a fostering of mutual understanding as well. So I remember when my twin sister was diagnosed with MS, and I remember her saying, "You know what? I thought I understood what you were going through, but now I realise actually I was empathising, and I didn't actually fully understand, even though I mean we're incredibly close, and we always have been." Um, and it was funny because for those three years when I had MS and she didn't, mm. it was it was funny because for the first time in our lives, there was a fundamental difference between the two of us. Yeah. Because we'd literally, we'd done everything together at school. We were in the same classes. We took the same subjects. We went to the same university, took the same degree. Um, and, wow. and we were working, our first jobs were at the same company. So, we, you know, very, very close. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I remember her saying, we were actually talking about fatigue, and she had said, I actually, I understand now where you were coming from. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Now, can you walk us through what a typical day looks like for you and, and how you're managing your symptoms throughout the day or being mindful of the choices that you make in your lifestyle? Yeah, so I I don't actually have a typical day. I was thinking about this um, just because, particularly over the last couple of weeks, there's been so many different things going on. So I do work full time. So um, with my um, with my job, uh, seven and a half hours a day, I'm I'm doing my job. Right. And my employers have been brilliant in terms of helping me to manage my MS. So they brought in you know various adjustments. Oh with, wow it has enabled me to carry on working full time. How wonderful. Yeah, which has been brilliant. Um, so there's there's that. But then with the advocacy um, and the awareness raising that I do, that in itself brings very different things sort of literally every single day. Mm. Um, so one day, um, you know, I might be, for example, doing an interview for a podcast. <laughs> I might be, you know, flying t- into mainland Europe to speak at conferences or events. Um, I might be, you know, chairing a conference call for a steering group that I'm, I'm part of. I might be writing a blog post or an article. I often do media interviews. So I'm often asked to go onto the radio to comment about a, you know, a new piece of research or, uh, or something like that. And I've done, you know, various things on television um, and also in the printed press as well, because so my advocacy isn't just to do with MS now. It's also gone beyond um, MS and gone across patient communities 
And I do a lot of work surrounding patient engagement. Mm. And um, so within the pharma industry, particularly, there's these buzzwords of patient centricity, for Mm. example. And a lot of what I'm doing, I'm working to get the patient voice heard throughout the entire healthcare journey, whether that's if you have MS, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, whether it's cancer, where it's any of those long term and serious conditions which can have a long-term impact on somebody's, you know, somebody's day-to-day life mm. about making sure that everything is focused on what the patient requires. So putting the patient needs at the center and then collaborating with the various stakeholders to make sure that, you know, we're all moving towards the same thing in the correct, in the correct way. Yeah. Um, which is one of the reasons, like I said, why, you know, no, so no one day is, is typical mm. doing so many different things. This episode is sponsored by Tonic Vibes. Tonic offers CBD blends that use organic sun-grown hemp flower from their family-run farm in upstate New York. Their original formulations were first developed by Tonic's founder, Brittany Carbone, to help manage her own anxiety and depression. Combining plant-based ingredients like ashwagandha, black seed oil, lemon balm, and passion flower, their soulfully crafted botanicals work synergistically with CBD to restore our body's essential balance. The magic is in the love and intention that goes into their products from seed to shelf. My favorite? Chronic Tonic, a roll-on for aches and pains that I keep in my purse. Go to Tonic Vibes, that's tonicvibes.com, and enter code INVISIBLE at checkout for 15% off. Right. So regardless of what I'm doing, I will usually need to have a, a nap during the day mm-hmm. with my bladder issues that's about if I'm so if I'm at home I don't worry about it too much because I'm close to a toilet and you know I just it doesn't really matter I will just drink however much I need to drink if I'm out then I do have to be mindful about how much I'm drinking and you know make sure that I know where the toilets are and things like that so you know you don't want to in the middle of a you know a one-hour presentation suddenly think oh no I need to go to the bathroom yeah <laughs> it's about you know about things like that and again when it comes to sort of managing fatigue there are certain things that I do so um for example where I live you know public transport links are very complicated mm. I live out in the in the countryside mm. um, so everywhere I go, it's either by car or by taxi. Mm. Actually, what I don't want to be doing is, you know, making a journey by public transport, which involves about three or four different connections, carrying my bag and all the things that I need. And by the time I actually get to where I need to get to, you're tired. <laughs> tired. Yeah. Exactly. Um, if I'm traveling abroad, I always book special assistance. Mm. Um, so, and also in the UK, they've come up with a really good um, scheme whereby they have these lanyards, which are sunflower lanyards, mm. which notes that somebody has an invisible um, disability. Oh, so wow. Some sort of, you know, extra help. And it just means that the airport staff are aware of that fact. So, you know, you can get fast track through security. You'll be be first on you know first to board um and things like that which all makes it 
that little bit easier because I actually traveled for a long time just because I found the whole process so exhausting. Yeah. Um, and these these things, you know, it, it may sound really small to somebody without a long term condition, but it makes such a huge difference. Yeah. Um, and you know, yes, I still find traveling very tiring, but it's not to the extent where you know I remember doing some trips, and I literally I didn't know how I was going to make it from the plane to the to the arrivals area. Mm that exhausted yeah um, so yeah all those those things uh, help and also exercise I um so as I said I used to play a lot of field hockey mm-hmm. I had to give that up about three years ago now because the fatigue was just it was getting too much um and in something like field hockey where you've got a team relying on you um but also Ball, hockey balls flying all over the place and you have to be very switched on and you have to be quick yeah to be quick um I'd had a couple of quite bad injuries um where I'd been hit with balls and things and I, it made me think well is it because I'm my reactions have slowed down mm. and it was wiping so what just the one match the weekend was wiping me out for sort of three or four days yeah um, so I took up dancing um, instead, um, mm-hmm. dancing in Zumba, and just love it because it's the kind of thing where you you go at your own pace and you do what what you're able to manage. So even if I'm having a, a slightly bad day with my fatigue, for instance, I can still go and basically just do what I'm able to do. As long as I'm moving, I'm you know I'm still burning the calories um it doesn't mean that you have to you know go go you know go crazy um and there's nobody else relying on you it's just you and you do and you know you push yourself as far as you you need to push yourself Mm. um plus for mental health I just think dancing is just brilliant I just I love I come out of a class and I feel on top of the world um and it's just yeah fantastic. Yeah. Well, and I was going to ask you as well, how you balance the demands of work and life, but as you mentioned, it sounds like your work is making accommodations for you and that's huge. Yes, no, it is. I'm, I'm very lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work for, I've been now working for them for, um, 15 years. Oh, this, wow. Yeah. So I'd been working for them for four years when I was diagnosed. So I feel very lucky in a way in that they already knew me mm-hmm. and they what type of person I was and you know they they didn't want to lose me as an employee um and you know so I think it it was very much it was two ways it was for me it's enabled me to carry on working full-time but then they you know hung on to somebody who they know is a you know is a good worker and you know I think that's that's really important and some of these adjustments that can be made are so simple yeah you know there needs to be more awareness and more encouragement of companies to to do these things yeah um because I think there is a huge demand for people who have long-term conditions um and disabilities who want to and can work if they're given the right environment to do so Um, so and like I said I've been very lucky in that you know they have been they have been really great so I've 
able to carry on working. Yeah, that's great. And it's so good for your mental health too, to have something yeah, outside yourself to focus on. Definitely, definitely. And yeah. it's the, the, that sort of the mental health and the, the development of things, that's why I think I enjoy doing the awareness raising and the advocacy so much because, um, yes, I have my job, but outside of that, I'm also developing a huge amount professionally and personally mm. because the advocacy I'm doing things that I wouldn't get to do as part of my job because it's not, you know, it's not in the job role. So, you know, giving presentations, for example, you know, doing media interviews and things like that, I would never get to do that as part of my job. So I feel as though I'm constantly developing as a person. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, the skills that I'm learning, the people that I'm meeting um, and things like that. I mean, so I, people never believe me when I tell them that I was actually really, really shy at school. Oh no! You see, I don't believe you. <laughs> so, I so I was really, really shy, and I was the kind of I was the kind of kid that even if I knew the answer to a question that the teacher asked, I wouldn't put up my hand because I'd be so scared of you know saying anything in public. Hmm. Now, I mean, so my largest live audience to date for one of my presentations has been over seven hundred people. Wow room I was up on a stage and you know I've spoken at 10 Downing Street I've spoken wow. Parliament and to have gone from that really really shy kid to somebody who's now doing that and enjoying it mm. I think that's really testament to you know if you've got something that you feel needs to be said it can really make you step out of your comfort zone um, and that's that I think that passion comes through mm. and people really engage with that um so I mean when I did um I so I did Strictly Come Dancing which is the UK version of Dancing with the Stars yeah so I did that in 2015 and I, so I was chosen so what they did was they it was a special four-part series of Strictly Come Dancing first time they'd ever done it um and you know for people who who are familiar with the format usually they get a whole bunch of celebrities pair them with a professional dancer and they learn how to dance ballroom and latin but for the first time ever the bbc decided that they were going to open it up to the general public Mm. as for nominations people they were looking for people who you know had done you know community work charity work overcome adversity in their life or encountered challenges and stuff and I'm a huge fan of the show so myself and my 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 younger sister every Saturday when it comes on from September through to December we're sat there we're watching it (laughs) and she's she's obviously saw that they were calling for nominations so unbeknownst to me Mm. she nominated me um and yeah they had over 11,000 nominations and chose six people Oh my gosh. So six out of 11,000. Yes. And I was one of the lucky six. Wow. Um, And, and again, so if somebody had said to me, even, you know, at the time, for example, when I was diagnosed that, you know, fast forward, however many years, I'm really bad at maths. I can't work it out that quickly. (laughs) Sorry, I forgive you. To 2015. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's seven. I bet somebody yeah. 
you're going to call in and say or um, write a comment and say actually no it's not her maths is terrible no no that's right it's seven years <laughs> <laughs> um yeah fast forward to then and you know somebody had told me that I was going to be dancing on national television yeah. in millions of viewers I should, I would have laughed at them I'm yeah. like no way that's not gonna happen <laughs> again it's about the I think the confidence that has been created as a result of the advocacy of what I'm doing, and also the fact that suddenly I was presented with this amazing opportunity to raise awareness on national television on actually. So Strictly Come Dancing in the UK is the most popular primetime entertainment show Mm. in the UK. So I was just like, well, this is just it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and also to dispel some of the myths and stereotypes. Mm. Because one of the, you know, a lot of people automatically equate MS with being in a wheelchair. And they don't necessarily realize that actually MS isn't just about mobility issues. Yeah. Actually, that's just one of a longer list of symptoms which people with MS can can um, can experience, and so being able to tell that literally to the nation mm. was an amazing opportunity. Um, so after the show aired, I not just myself but my parents and my sisters as well, who they were interviewed as part of the as part of the series. Um, we were being stopped in the street, in the supermarket, and people, you know, people were asking, like, my parents, well, how's your daughter doing? You know, and, you know, we learned so much. And then people in the MS community were saying things like, oh, you know, you've inspired me to be more active because I didn't know that people with MS could do that. Mm. Or they said that it made it easier for them to start conversations with their own, you know, families and support networks because they were able to say, oh, you know, I have MS. That's what, you know, that girl on Strictly Come Dancing had. And so to have had that opportunity to create this, um, you know, amazing platform to raise awareness, I think was just, you know, I think that was, to be honest, the best thing that has come out of it um, obviously, aside from the fact that it was brilliant to have all the makeup and the beautiful dresses, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, I mean that was that was brilliant. Um, but yeah, and I think it's also it made me so it made me realise that I was capable of doing things I never thought I was capable of. Isn't that um, wonderful? It is. It is, and I think that was you know not just down to the fact that you know obviously my family believed in me um or to <laughs> to the extent so I do remember um my sister saying to me whatever you do don't go on national television and fall over <laughs> thank <laughs> you she had seen me in some of the rehearsals and there were a couple of times I literally ended up because I had to dance in heels mm. fatigued and you're wearing heels and you're asked to dance that was that was difficult yeah. there were a couple of times I literally and ended up flat on my face um as you not do that on national television (laughs) but it was also the encouragement from everyone in the team so all of the crew were behind so not just me but also the other five 
um, people who took part who also had, you know, their own specific, you know, um, sort of stories and their own journeys that they'd been on. Um, but also my professional dancer that I was paired with, um, a guy, he say he's Slovenian, um, his name is Aliash Skornianic, who's a you know, real favourite on Strictly Come Dancing in the UK. And, you know, he, he made me believe in myself. He made me think, yes, we could do this and we could do it really well. Mm. Um, the choreographers, they were, you know, that he was just brilliant. And he was, he was very much, how can we choreograph this dance to make sure that you're still challenging yourself, but we're able to see the best in you. Mm. Is, you know, I think, and I think that shows that with understanding and support, things are possible. Yeah. Things are achievable. Um, I mean, it doesn't matter what, what you're doing so I remember so um gosh this would have been uh this would have been around five around five years after I was diagnosed I decided so I'd always wanted to go snowboarding hmm. I'd never done any kind of yes any kind of winter sports yes I'd like I'd been as a kid I'd been ice skating to the ice rink sure I don't really count that um and so at the age of, gosh, I was in my early 30s, I decided, okay, I'm going to try snowboarding, even though I have S and even though I have extreme fatigue. Um, and I literally spent three days on my backside. Oh, man. But my instructor was just so supportive. I remember the, um, on the last day, I made it basically down from the top of the mountain down to the bottom. It took me over three hours. Wow. And a seasoned snowboarder would be able to do it in like 20 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But she was brilliant. And literally it had got got to that point where I was so physically exhausted. Every time I fell, I couldn't even get myself back up. And, you know, she was uh, she was around 19, 20 years old and she was physically having to haul me up. Wow. No, every time I fell. But she was like, no, we are going to do this. She said, you've come to learn how to snowboard and we are going to get to the bottom of the mountain, even if it takes all day. She was a goer like you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, like I said, that kind of support and having that kind of encouragement around you can make such a difference in you know what you feel you can achieve because it makes you believe in yourself. And it sounds like also, you know, not only has it allowed you to shift your perspective, you know, when when you got sick, you know, you, you go through the negative motions, but it's allowed you to see your MS as a blessing because you're able to get out there and, and represent your community, but also you're able to diversify the public's understanding of disability as well. Definitely, definitely. You know, the first things that people often say to me when I tell them that I have MS is, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I always say to them, you know what, don't be, because I have had so many fantastic opportunities as a result of my MS which are once in a lifetime opportunities. I mean, you know, there aren't many people who can say that they, they've, you know, been to, so I've been to 10 Downing Street twice now. Wow. As a result 
of my advocacy work mm. and you know that I've been to parliament you know I had the opportunity to, to do Strictly Come Dancing just that you know on its own mm. just makes me feel that you know this was what I, I honestly feel that this is what I was meant to do in my life and I feel that you know unfortunately many people don't necessarily find their purpose in life I, I feel very lucky that I feel that I have and it's a direct result of my diagnosis. So it doesn't matter what happens in the future in terms of how the MS progresses or anything like that. I will always hold on to that and know that the things that have happened, you know, the good and so many positive things that have happened have happened because, because of this condition. Mm. Um, so I just I can't I refuse to see it I always say I refuse to see it as a negative yes I have down days but that doesn't mean that I see my MS as a negative thing in my life I have down days just like anybody else it's just that the reason why I'm feeling down might be because for example I'm having a bad bladder day and you know and I'm thinking oh gosh you know I have to go out to I, you know I have to travel into London in a few hours and, you know, every other 20 minutes, I'm having to go to the toilet. Right. How, how am I going to cope? But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's, you know, I just, I can't see my MS as negative in my life. Just, I can't. <laughs> yeah. I, and it's such a wonderful perspective. And that's where I think it's so important for people to hear your voice in the community. This episode is sponsored by Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com slash invisible, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.